It's always a bit of an awkward and interesting proposition to be the one who has to stand before a room of people and talk about pride and humility. And uh, so I just say to you as we get started this morning, um, I read a quote this week that said, the person that thinks they're humble has no humility at all. And so I don't stand here thinking that I have this figured out or that I'm completely humble. My prayer this entire week is that this would be taught in humility and you would not feel the least bit like I'm speaking down to you or that I have this figured out, but that we would learn together how to cultivate humility and weaken pride in our lives. So that's been my prayer all week. I pray that it's received in that way, but I just want to say that before we talk about pride and humility. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 5. If you open your Bible to the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to hit the Psalms, and then if you turn to the right, you'll go through books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you'll come to Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat back in front of you that you can use, and if you don't own a Bible, take that home. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Daniel 5 in those black Bibles can be found on page 617. We ask you to do this every week, but I highly encourage you to have a Bible on your lap this morning. We're going to walk through almost all of chapter 5, and I think it will be helpful for you to be able to follow along and take notes or or write notes in your Bible. So I I encourage you to do that. As you're finding Daniel chapter 5, if you haven't been with us the past month, we're in a summer series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. We've seen in the first four chapters that the greatest nation on earth, a country named Babylon, came to Jerusalem in 605 B.C., 605 years before Jesus was born. They destroyed the city, and they carried off exiles, and some of those exiles was a boy named Daniel and his friends. And what we've seen in the first four chapters is no matter what, no matter what, these followers of the one true God believed that God was in control, And they stayed faithful to him no matter what they faced. So last week, Jeff did a great job talking about chapter 4. And he taught about Nebuchadnezzar. And what we learned was that his pride led to his downfall. But when he humbled himself and saw himself in light of how great God is and how small he was, he was restored to his throne. I'm sure most of you have either seen a movie or a television show. And you've heard of something called a cliffhanger, right? You've all heard cliffhangers? It's where the season just ends, and you're left on the edge of your seat. I think that's what we have here in chapter 4. Jeff ended last week with chapter 4, verse 37. Would you read that with me on the first gray box on your notes? This is the cliffhanger. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of heaven, Because all his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. There's a bolded sentence in there. Can we read that sentence one more time together? It says, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. If you're following in your notes, Daniel chapter 5 is an example for those who walk in pride. And shows us no matter what we think, God is in control of our lives. It's an example for those who walk in pride. And no matter what we think, God's in control. So so the words, he is able to humble those who walk in pride, float in the air. 
If this were a television series, the screen would go black and leave us in suspense. And then we come to chapter 5. And we need to know a lot of time has passed since the end of chapter 4, perhaps 40 years. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead almost 25 years, and there's a new king in town named Belshazzar. And it's a new season about to begin. And so if this was the pickup to the cliffhanger, this is what it might look like. Babylon, the greatest power the world had ever seen, was only a few hours away from enemy invasion and collapse. Babylon was thought to be invincible. However, a week earlier, a man named Cyrus the Persian had brought a great army toward Babylon. And only 50 miles away, the Medo-Persian army defeated the Babylonian army decisively, which meant Babylon was now completely defenseless. And then the screen would pan to the great banquet hall in the Babylonian city. And the party that's being thrown by the king. And we read about that beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read verse 1, and then I'm going to ask you to read verse 2 and 4 with me in the second gray box on your notes. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Read this with me. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink for them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you notice what verb was used five times in those verses? To drink. To drink. It was a party where the wine was flowing and the women were brought in for one purpose. It was a party of seductive excess where any appetite was indulged. And we're told in his arrogance, Belshazzar was thumbing his nose at the enemy. The army of the Medo Persians was ready to destroy their kingdom that night. And in his pride and his arrogance, he threw a party. And he thumbed his nose at the enemy as if to say, you don't scare us. And he thumbed his nose at God in his pride saying, God, I'm in control here. I'm in control. And we read that during the party, Belshazzar had the gold goblets that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had obtained decades earlier when Babylon looted the Jewish temple. The bringing in of these items is a way of remembering. If you're following in your notes, the goblets were brought out as a way to remember the king's greatness. They're brought out to remember his greatness. It's, it's Belshazzar deliberately talking about the greatness and the might of his empire. It is extreme arrogance. It's a way of saying that this Hebrew God who you say created the world, who you say parted the Red Sea, who you say gave the plagues, who you say did all these powerful things, he has no power over me and my kingdom. He has no power. And so the, the wine is flowing, and out come the golden goblets that were created from the one, for the one true God. And Belshazzar is probably taking these goblets and sloshing the wine around, and he is toasting his false gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It was complete mockery. It was complete mockery of the God of the universe. 
If you're following in your notes, this king was declaring that with his hand, he had a firm grip on God. He was declaring that with his hand, he had a firm grip on God. And then suddenly, everything goes quiet. I want you to picture the scene. The the hush settles over hundreds and thousands of drunk men and women as they gasped in horror at what they saw. The one who seemingly held God in his hand now sees a strange hand appear, and it begins writing on a wall. And in verse 5, if you're following in your Bibles, it says, Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The room was still. Only the horrifying, scratching noise echoed through the room as the hand wrote this message. And then as mysteriously as it came, it was gone. And we read in verse 5, The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. Here's what I find interesting. In one verse, from verse 4 to to verse 5, everything changes. We go from verse 4 where we see Belshazzar at the height of his confidence and arrogance in himself and his false gods that he created. And in verse 5 and 6, we see a man who is scared to death, helpless, and trying to grab for anything he can make sense of because he doesn't know what's going on. In one verse, Belshazzar goes from being prideful and arrogant to recognizing he's helpless. And what we do sometimes is we look at this foolish king and we say, you deserve everything you got. This was coming to you. But before we condemn him, I wonder if a lot of us have had things change in our life in just one verse. Sometimes we trust in ourselves and our false gods of consumerism and materialism and wealth, and then we suddenly find ourselves without a job and the bills are piling up and we don't know where to turn. Sometimes we make an idol out of our marriages or our families, making them the most important things in the world, and one verse later, we get a call in the middle of the night that changes everything, one verse later. Or what about when life is going great, and we actually don't need God that much because we're doing pretty good on our own. And then the doctor calls after an appointment and says, I need you to come back in because we need to have a conversation, one verse later. So before we condemn the king, We forget that God is in control and holds our lives in his hands sometimes too. If you're following along in your notes, like the king, we have all placed our confidence in things other than God. We've all done this. So Belshazzar has literally been brought to his knees by the writing on the wall. He doesn't know what to do, so we read in verse 7, In your Bibles, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Where it says the king summoned the enchanters, the original language means that the king kept screaming for them. God had effectively gotten his attention. Nothing else could. 
this did. And we're told in verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The wisest men in the city, maybe even the entire country, had no clue what the writing meant, and I'm sure they called on their false gods to answer them, and unsurprisingly, there was no answer. And in verse 10 to 12, we then see that the queen comes in because she hears all the commotion, and she hears all the screaming, and the queen says, don't be alarmed. Don't be distraught. There's a man in your kingdom. His name's Daniel. He served Nebuchadnezzar, and he interpreted dreams and visions. He can help you here. And so they bring Daniel in, and the scene becomes an 80-year-old Daniel walks in the room. And I can't imagine what Daniel thought as he walked in this banquet hall and he saw the drinking and the women and the indulgence. And I wonder if he's just walking in to see the king because you approach the king straight away. And I wonder if his eyes turned to see something and he saw golden goblets that he would not have seen since he was a boy in the temple in Jerusalem as they were being used for the worship of the one true God. And he sees that they're filled with wine and they're being used to toast the false gods of iron and bronze and wood and stone. And I just, he had to be sick. I bet he was disgusted at what he saw. And in verse 18, Daniel addresses the king. He says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes." All Daniel did here is he recounted a very familiar family story. We've all done this. We go to Thanksgivings or Christmas, and you're like, do you remember that time that Uncle Ralph thought he could climb to the top of the real Christmas tree and put the star on, and it fell over? And we all have these crazy stories that are warnings for us not to climb to the top of the tree and do the same thing Uncle Ralph did. That's all Daniel's doing here. Hey, Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he got prideful and arrogant, bad things happened. He lost his kingdom. He lost his mind. And then when he humbled himself, God graciously restored him to the throne. Listen, Belshazzar knew the penalty for pride and arrogance. He knew who God was. He knew what God could do. He knew God's power. He knew what God wanted. He knew He knew. He had been given a warning through the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and in his pride, he ignored it. He thought he was different. He thought he was in control, and he could not have been more wrong. 
So Daniel continues to rebuke him in verses 22 and 23. Would you read those verses with me in the gray box on your notes? It says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. I'll continue if you follow along in your Bibles. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, you drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And what Daniel does here, he rebukes Belshazzar regarding four offenses. If you're following in your notes, the, the first offense, Belshazzar won. He rejected the truth. He rejected the truth. He knew all this. He knew who God was and he knew the consequences for pride and arrogance and he rejected the truth. Two, Belshazzar set himself against God. He set himself against God. He defied God and believed that he was the one in control of his own life. Three, Belshazzar worshipped false gods. He worshipped gods that he could control. He worshipped false gods. And four, Belshazzar wasted his life. Daniel says, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. Belshazzar wasted his life, and he missed the purpose of his life. Rather than seeking God's glory, he had lived totally for himself. The handwriting on the wall is God's response to the proud heart of Belshazzar. But if you're following in your notes, the handwriting on the wall is a warning for us too. It's a warning for us too. We've all rejected the truth. We've all done this. We are all without excuse, the Bible says. We have all said, I know better than God, and I'm going to do it my way. Some of us, myself included, if we haven't said these words out loud, we've thought these words, I know what the Bible says, but we know it better. We have rejected the truth because we want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. It's a warning for us. We've all set ourselves against God. This has been the sin from the Garden of Eden until now. We arrogantly challenge God and we think we know better. It stems from rejecting the truth. We have set ourselves against God. We've all worshipped false gods. We've all done it. Just so we're clear, when I say false gods, what I mean is anything that we put in the place that only Jesus deserves, the main thing in our lives, the priority above all things. And we all put false gods and idols in the place that only Jesus deserves. And, and idols for us, there are jobs, money, power, position, church, family, our kids' sporting events, our sexuality, our addictions. They're false gods. And the reason we always run back to them and we go back and we go back and we go back is because false gods always disappoint us. They never live up to what they promise. And so we need more of them. And the only thing that can satisfy is a relationship with Jesus. But we all have worshipped false gods. And we all have a choice to make, just like Belshazzar had, of whether we're going to live for God's glory 
or whether we're going to waste our lives living for our glory. So it's a warning for us too, this writing on the wall. We need to be careful. And so in verse 24 to 28 in your Bibles, Daniel finally reveals what the words mean. If you're following along, he says in his Bible, Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. If you're following on your notes, just to review this real quick so we know what these words mean, mene, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. And Parson, your kingdom will be divided. Your kingdom will be divided. I love how one author paraphrased this. He he said this. He said, this is what Daniel said to the king. Your number is up. You're a moral lightweight. You've squandered your privileges. The party's over. Then in verse 29, this story concludes by saying, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over for the kingdom at the age of 62. The most powerful empire of the ancient world fell that night without a fight, unable to defend itself against the judgment of God. And the warning for us is that any person, any culture, or any nation, anybody who does this can be taken out when we turn away from the truth. It's a warning for us. The handwriting on the wall is our warning. And all of this happened because of one word. Do you want to guess what that word is? Help me out. Pride. All of it happened because of pride. I want to give you this definition from C.J. Mahaney. I thought it was a really helpful definition to help us understand this story. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. In short, it's when we want to be God. That's pride. C.S. Lewis called pride the greatest sin because, I quote, pride leads to every other sin. He says that pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Another author, John Stott, says pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Now that's what humans say about pride, but I want to know what God says about pride, and he's very clear with what he thinks about it. In Psalm 101, verse 5, he says, Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. In Proverbs 16.5, he says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. In James 4.6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then Proverbs 8.13 will get your attention. I hate pride and arrogance. 
The verbs that were used there, it says God will not tolerate. He detests. He opposes. He punishes. He will pay it back in full. He hates. So then the question is, why does God make such a big deal about pride? Because our, our world sure doesn't. Why does God make such a big deal about pride? And, and to quote C.S. Lewis again, he says, unless you know God as superior to yourself, and therefore you know yourself as nothing compared to God, you do not know God at all. If you're following in your notes, he concludes this quote by saying these words, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. And what we need to know is God's greatest desire for us in our lives is to know him. He loved us so much, and he wants to know us. He wants us to know him so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die a death on the cross that we deserve so we could know him. And when we live in pride, we cannot know him. Do you remember the first speech Jesus ever gave called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? This is where he addressed his disciples for the very first time. And these are the first words that Jesus said to his followers. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge their need for a savior. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why God is so intensely opposed to pride, because prideful people don't think they need God. They think they've got it all held together in their hand. And friends, the, the reason I get so passionate about this, the reason is because I've lived this way for years. There's a pastor named Craig Rochelle in Oklahoma who coined the phrase Christian atheist. I lived like that for a number of years because while I claimed to be a follower of Jesus, I relied on myself for everything, which led to this incredible sense of entitlement that God owed me. And if something didn't go right, then I got, it mad. I got mad at God because he owed me. And man, I deserved it. God, God owed me. I didn't have a relationship with God. I had created a God in the image that I wanted so I could control him. And there's still days where that creeps back in, where I want to be in control. I want to be independent. I don't need God. I've got this in my hands. And what I find when I live that way and when I lived that way for years, I made a complete mess of my life. Left to myself, I can screw anything up really good. I need God. We need God. So no matter what we think about ourselves or how in control we think we are, there is one who is in control, and there will come a day where we will be humbled. And the question is, will we do that now or will we do it when it's too late? Friends, Belshazzar's wall is our wall. The warning to Belshazzar is a warning to us. Mene, mene, tekel, parson is written on all of our walls. Friends, mene, our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. James 4.14 tells us that our lives are a vapor, a mist. They are here one day, and then they're gone. Our days are numbered. Tekel, when our days are done, we will be weighed on a scale. And if we're going to depend on our good deeds and what we've done, then we will be found wanting. 
We spent the entire spring studying the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And one of the main themes that comes from that is that you did not save yourself, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved so that no one can boast and be prideful about it. God did the saving. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, can I, can I just plead with you for just a minute? None of us measures up to God's standing. We are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And every one of us is weighed on the scales and found wanting. And that is why Jesus died to pay our debt. So that when we get to heaven, if we're going de- to depend on our good deeds and what we've done, we will not measure up and we will spend an eternity without God in hell. But if we acknowledge that we are sinners and Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and we accept the free gift that he offers, when we get to heaven and we are weighed on that scale, he will look at us and see his son, Jesus Christ, and we will not be found wanting. I plead with you this morning. Your life is a vapor. It is a mist. The only thing you are guaranteed is the last breath you took. Would you please consider that you will be weighed and found wanting if you're not a follower of Jesus? Mene, tekel, parson, divided. One day, all of our stuff will be divided. Life is temporary, it's fleeting, and man, we spend so much time collecting and protecting our stuff. And one day, it's all going to be divided. So what are we going to live for? What's most important, a relationship with Jesus or chasing after things that will not matter in the end? It's a choice we all have to make. And it's a warning for us. Belshazzar's wall is our wall, but only humble people heed this warning. And if you're following on your notes, it's because the anecdote to pride is humility. The anecdote to pride is humility. And humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is a a perspective changer with God and each other. If we see ourselves in this light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, we have no room to be prideful before God. He's the one that saved us. And we have no room to be prideful before other people because we realize we're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And all too often, Christians have just messed up this pride thing, and we've turned people off. But we can weaken pride and cultivate humility in our lives. Earlier this year, we declared together our values, and one of those values that we wanted to be authentic and humble people. Would you read this value with me on the screen? Read this with me. We value authenticity because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We seek to humbly and transparently represent Christ in all we do and say. If we're serious about this, if we're serious about being an authentic, humble people, it's going to take work because we don't just slip into humility. It's not natural for us to be humble. So I wanted to share with you some ways we can work on this and a list of suggestions. If you turn your notes over to the back of the notes, 
This is a list of suggestions of how to weaken pride and cultivate humility. And what these are, friends, these are perspective changers. These are perspective changers. I I love how the first one says, always reflect on the wonder of the cross. Reflect on the wonder of the cross. If we're ever struggling with pride, reflect on the cross. Again, we didn't do anything to save ourselves. It's how much God loved us that he saved us. That levels the playing field. Reflect on the wonder of the cross. We're going to have a chance to do that in communion in just a few minutes. As each day begins, Jeff talked about this a little bit last week. He's going to talk about this more next week. As each day begins, acknowledge your dependence on God and your need of God. Before your day begins, express gratefulness to God through prayer or worship or spending time in his word. Do this consistently each day. And I know some of you are not morning people and you do better meditation and Bible reading late at night. Cool, do that late at night, but begin your day with the perspective changer that God is in control. Simply acknowledge him at the beginning of your day. It is a way to weaken pride and cultivate humility. And then just as the day began, as the day ends, transfer the glory to God. Thank him for everything that happened throughout the day. As you lay your head on the pillow, receive his gift of sleep and rest and recognize he is the one who sustained you throughout the day. We begin our day and we end our day with God. It's a way to cultivate humility and weaken pride. For special focus, these are great. Do a Bible study on the attributes of God, the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of sin. He says, play golf as much as possible. Because God, God, God really wants us to enjoy him, and he wants us to enjoy life, so do things that you enjoy. Because it brings glory to God. So that's a way. And as you do those, thank him that you get to do them. It's a way to weaken pride and cultivate humility. And then I love this last one of throughout your days and weeks because it's all, it all has to do with other people. We need other people to remain humble. So we identify evidences of grace in others. We encourage and serve others. We invite and pursue correction. Do you have anybody in your life who can speak truth into you where there might be a pocket of pride that you need to hear about and then respond humbly to trials? These are all ways to weaken pride and cultivate humility, but we've got to work at it. We've got to be intentional about it because we're not just going to slip into it. And so it begins with answering a question. And the question I want to leave you with today, we all have a decision to make. Nebuchadnezzar had a decision to make. Belshazzar had a decision to make. We have a decision to make. If you're following in your notes, will I humbly acknowledge that God is in control of my life? Will I humbly acknowledge that God is in control of my life? And it all starts with that decision. It all starts with that. Would you pray with me? God, we, we need your help on this. Left to ourselves, we are proud people. We like to do things when we want to do them and how we want to do them. And we like to be independent and It's made our country great. It's our greatest strength, but also our greatest weakness. And so, God, we need you. 
and we acknowledge our dependence on you right now. And I want to pray for our church family that we would be an authentic and humble people that strive to become more like Jesus in everything we do and say, so Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your help. God, would you help us turn to you from the moment we wake up until the moment we go back to bed, acknowledging that you are in control and you hold our life in your hands. God, bring that to our mind. Bring it to our heart. We need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody agreed and said, amen.